0: Hello and welcome to the Biotech 2050 podcast. Biotech 2050 is a think tank chronicling the disruptions changing the biotech industry over the next several decades. Check out our website at biotech2050.com. I'm today's host, Alok Tai. I'm the VP of Life Sciences at Ignite, and we're a secure content platform focused on key global industries. I'm really excited to be joined by Jacob Rubens and Hari Pujar from Tessera Therapeutics. We're going to be talking a little bit about the history of medicine, the opportunity for genomic medicine, as well as the impact of such therapies on health and medicine more broadly. Jacob Hari, thanks so much for joining us today.
1: Great to be here. Glad to be here. Thank you, Hello.
0: So maybe to kick us off, we'd love it if you both can perhaps give us a quick overview of your backgrounds and how you got to where you are today. Hari, do you want to start first?
1: Sure. So I've been in the industry about 24 plus years. I'm a chemical engineer by training. I spent 18 of those years at Merck across the value chain, but primarily focused on vaccines and biologics. I spent four and a half years at Moderna developing RNA medicines for a variety of therapeutic areas. And then right before coming to TESRA, I was at Spark Therapeutics as their chief technology officer developing AAV gene therapies.
2: Hey, I'm the chief scientific officer of TESRA and co-founder of the company. I've been focused on Tesser for the past few years, and before that, had started a couple other companies at Flagship Pioneering. Most recently, a company called SANA Biotechnology, which is developing new platforms for in vivo gene therapy and ex vivo cell therapies. I led the development of uh, the in vivo gene therapy platform there. My training is in the synthetic biology field, and I got interested in entrepreneurship while in grad school at MIT. I made the great decision to not go forward with the business I was working on during grad school. And uh, decided to come to Flagship Pioneering, where I've learned from fantastic entrepreneurs about how to professionalize life science innovation.
0: Awesome. Well, it certainly sounds like you both have very interesting and perhaps complementary backgrounds from an entrepreneurial and biotech standpoint. So really excited for today's conversation. You know, given that Tessera is sort of pioneering sort of a new class of therapies... It's really at the vanguard from an innovation perspective. It'll be maybe a great place to start to help give the audience some anchoring around genomic medicine and sort of how the evolution of medicine has occurred over the past, say, you know, 150 years.
1: Yeah, Sure. I'm happy to start, Alok. Again, these are broad brushstrokes that I'll cover. We've been doing modern medicines for about 150 years, and we've done small molecules for that period of time vaccines sprinkled in along the way, but the focus has been small molecule drugs. About 40 years ago, we got onto protein drugs. These are molecules that the small molecules act on. And so that was kind of one step in. And we've built an amazing protein industry at this point, which almost rivals in size relative to the small molecule industry. Moving up the central dogma, We then, 20 years ago, embarked on RNA medicines, both to inhibit protein production via siRNAs or ASOs, or to promote protein production via mRNA. And 20 years later, that RNA drug industry has certainly established itself as a legitimate part of this industry, particularly underscored by the last year and a half with messenger RNA drugs. The next logical step from RNA is DNA. And we have been playing with DNA drugs for some time, but we feel like that the DNA drug world is still open for leadership. We've had AAV gene therapy that has done wonders for a couple of diseases. We've had lentiviral gene therapy that has proven itself in a few areas. And then we have had CRISPR-Cas, but we feel like there is still a lot of unmet need in terms of genetic medicine. Parallel to this evolution in medicine kind of against the central dogma of molecular biology, what's also happened is in the world of small molecules, we saw a reduction in return on R&D spending over a 50-year period from about 1960 down to 2010. And this data was compiled by two researchers and they plotted the number of drugs per billion dollars of R&D spending as a function of time. And that curve is a scary looking curve because it's a curve that slopes downward on a log scale saying that for every decade, there's a log reduction in the number of drugs that we get for a billion dollars of R&D spend. And they call this curve e Law. Eroom's law happens to be Moore's law backwards. And that's uh, precisely what it is intending to convey, that we're actually not marching ahead. But the last 10 years or so, we're seeing an upturn in this Eroom's law. And I think a lot of that has to do with the movement of the drug industry up the central dogma of molecular biology. And so... I think I want to leave the viewers with a, a lot of hope here that we are by focusing on the root cause of disease and by designing clinical trials that are much more targeted, we're able to get a better return on our r and d dollars. And Tesra is right at the middle of both of those revolutions.
0: It certainly sounds like a much needed set of change in perspective from a drug development standpoint. And it sounds like you all are, are really trying to push that forward. You know, we'd love to learn a little bit more about the technology and what specific maybe gap you've found from a modality and technology perspective that is sort of built on.
2: Yeah, some of the best tools that we think will be coming down the pipeline in the future uh, across the entire industry are going to be genetic medicines. These are medicines that are targeted at specific genes and intend to make specific changes in the genome in order to treat disease. And the reason that technology is so powerful is, of course, because DNA is the code of life. It's the source for everything that happens downstream. And if you can change DNA, the change can be enduring and it can be really, really powerful. And of course, it also has a higher probability of success than nearly any other drug because we have genetics supporting that those changes in DNA can be directly linked to a phenotype in the patient's health or disease. This is most clear, of course, in rare diseases and oncology, which is why a lot of companies focus on on those two areas for drug development. So at Tessera, we're focused on a couple problems in the genetic medicine space. But the one that I think is most central to us is engineering the genome. But taking a step back, if you want to make a genetic medicine, there's kind of three main problems to solve. There's delivering the technology to the right cell in the body. There's changing the DNA once the technology reaches the cell. And then there's the question of what is the DNA change that you want to make. We're focused mostly on that middle problem. How do we change the genome? This is more broadly referred to as genome engineering and includes technologies like gene editing and base editing. What we're developing at Testra is expands the possibilities of genome engineering space. It's something that we call gene writing. So the genesis of this technology goes back to an exploration that we did at Flagship Pioneering, starting in 2018. And it started from the question, what if there were better genome engineering tools that evolved than CRISPR? And the reason we asked that question is because CRISPR, it actually turns out, is somewhat limited in the types of changes to DNA that it can make. CRISPR evolved in at least the types of CRISPR that most people use, are most commonly used in the lab. It evolved to destroy the DNA of invading viruses, of bacteriophages that deliver their DNA into cells. And so when we use a CRISPR enzyme to edit the human genome, we're using scissors, which can cut DNA, but it can't paste DNA. It can't fix the cut that's introduced into our genome. And it's actually DNA or prayer proteins from our own cells that grab the broken DNA and stitch it back together. And because those pathways didn't evolve to install specific edit, they didn't evolve to paste large sequences of DNA to our genome. The most common outcome for a CRISPR genome editing of any human cell is a small insertion or deletion. And that's a great outcome if the goal is to knock out a gene, to turn off its function. It's not a great outcome for the vast majority of genetic medicine opportunities. Now, of course, that's not to say that there's not a lot of amazing things that can be done by just knocking out a gene. Some of the most advanced programs and companies like CRISPR Therapeutics, Editas, Intelia, and then other companies using related nucleus technologies like Precision and Sangamo, they're mostly focused on knocking out genes and breaking them. And recently, we've seen some really exciting evidence of the clinical impact of these technologies with the Vertex-CRISPR collaboration sickle cell disease with Atelier's recent data as well. But all of that said, that leaves a lot of opportunity unaddressed. So at Flagship, we conducted an exploration into whether biology evolved alternative tools for engineering the genome, systems that naturally evolved not just to cut DNA, but to actually write DNA to the genome. And we actually relatively quickly came across a class of genes known as mobile genetic elements. It turns out that these are actually the most abundant genes in nature. There's more mobile genetic element DNA than anything else. And the reason that's the case is because mobile genetic elements exist for the sole purpose of copying and pasting DNA. They literally can move a sequence of their choosing from one location of the genome to another. And so they've been proliferating in genomes without cell division over eons. A fun fact is actually that about 50% of our own genome is comprised of mobile genetic element DNA. So a lot of that dark matter that people don't talk about is just mobile genetic elements. So we looked at this class of genes that we realized was the most abundant genes in nature and said, okay, there's probably something in here we can adapt to create a new genome engineering technology. So we started to explore all the different classes of mobile genetic elements retrotransposons, transposons transposons or combinases, and all the subsets thereof to identify the types of proteins that we thought would allow us to make a new type of genome engineering tool as a therapy for humans. We focused in on a couple of these and started the company and were able to show that these do work and that we can do things no one's ever been able to do before to edit the genome. This was the genesis of what became Tessera Therapeutics. And a couple of years later, we've made a lot of progress on being able to develop this technology. Awesome.
0: Sounds really interesting and definitely a unique insight, right? Compared to perhaps where the majority of industry has been going from a genetic perspective. Yes. Out of curiosity, as you think about the scope with which genomic medicine could impact health, kind of curious if you can help break down for the audience, what types of diseases might not fall within the realm that genetic medicine could potentially impact? You know, you certainly alluded to some that are high potential, like rare diseases, as an example. Can you give us a sense of maybe some that might be out of scope?
2: Yeah, glad to take a stab at it a look. And Hari, would love your thoughts on this as well. Best to start from what we think is more straightforward, I think, and then to circle back on what, what is more challenging. So diseases that arise from a direct mutation in the genome are where we're most likely to start. That's because it presents the lowest risk for the company. And those diseases are also really have a high unmet need. So if we can, say, insert 10 base pairs that are deleted in the genome, we know that there are certain diseases we can cure if we can deliver our gene-writing technology to the right cells in the body. Same with small substitutions, deleting extra DNA that's inserted, or writing a whole gene to the genome. There's tens of thousands of genetic mutations, thousands of diseases that meet those criteria that tester can address. But one thing we've been really excited about as we start to explore genomes more broadly, as we sequence more and more patient genomes is that there's mutations that can not only cure disease, but also protect from disease. So great example, this is mutations in PCSK9, where if a patient has loss of function in that gene, they're very unlikely to develop cardiovascular disease. And this is, of course, led to the development of the next generation cardiovascular disease therapeutics. We could theoretically introduce the same mutation into patients in order to prevent them from ever getting cardiovascular disease, even if they weren't born with this mutation. And there's uh, likely to be many other examples of such mutations that can prevent chronic disease, which will be revealed over the next coming decades as we sequence more and more patient genomes. So theoretically, the ability to rewrite or write a gene to the genome also opens the opportunity to address other diseases which aren't classically thought as genetic. For example, we could write the sequence coding for an antibody into our genome to be able to express the antibody in vivo to say more canonically go after or make biologics in the body. You could also imagine making synthetic vaccines where the vaccine is, say, the antibody that is being developed for COVID-19. So making a monoclonal antibody in the body to prevent an infection rather than trying to generate the polyclonal responses that occur when we're infected with the coronavirus or when we get a a traditional mRNA or denoviral vector vaccine. I think some of the diseases which might be more challenging or which I'd say would be unlikely for us to go after... Maybe some more infections from bacterial infections where it's clear that antibiotics are the very best solution for patients or some of the more next generation microbiome treatments that are coming down the pipeline. But I think there's an opportunity to go after the vast majority of diseases with what we're developing at Tessar with our gene writing technology.
1: That was great, Jake. If I may just zoom out, if you broadly say diseases are caused by genes plus environment, clearly the diseases that are caused by genes are theoretically in scope for Tessera. There's a broad variety of them. There's the monogenic, and then there's the polygenic. The monogenic are the easy ones, relatively speaking. The polygenic, perhaps further out. If you take the diseases caused by the environment, cancer, let's say, we have the opportunity to go after cancer by tweaking the genetics of, say, T-cells we could go after cardiovascular disease by tweaking the genetics of PCSK9, like Jake mentioned. So I think with gene writing, we have the opportunity to affect a wide variety of diseases, obviously starting from the simplest, which would be monogenic in nature, leading to polygenic. But because DNA is so-called the root cause, we have the ability to affect a wide variety of diseases. As we target more complex diseases, it will require maturation of the technology. It will require delivery technology to fully realize the full potential of uh, Tesra technology.
2: Well, look, maybe to illustrate that, it might be helpful to explain a little bit more what gene writing can do. The gene writing technology that we've created at Tessera is capable of both rewriting the genome and writing whole genes into the genome. What we mean by rewriting is making small substitutions, small insertions, and small deletions. To change a gene wherever it lies today in the genome. So, for example, if there's a small deletion, we can insert the missing DNA. There's an insertion, we can delete the inserted DNA. And if there's a base pair or multiple base pair changes that need to be made, we can rewrite those from the mutation to the more wild type or correct version of the gene. And we can also write entire genes into the genome. So, not just canonically edit, but also add new sequence information, like a chimeric antigen receptor to the genome to make T cells or to insert a piece of DNA that codes for an entire gene and can actually complement or actually fix many underlying mutations all at once. This collective toolkit of being able to rewrite and write the genome goes well beyond what is possible with any other existing collection of genome engineering tools that other companies have as far as we're aware of. And it's given us a lot of flexibility in how we think about our near-term opportunities and programs. And one thing we're becoming increasingly excited about is the potential to do all of this by just relying upon RNA and lipid nanoparticles. And that excitement has been driven by the success of the coronavirus vaccines over the last year and a half. What we've seen is that these RNA-based medicines can go from conception to being manufactured in very short order, the very high levels of efficacy and safety associated with them. In fact, RNA medicines have now been administered to many more patients than nearly any any other technology in the whole biotech industry. And that requires not only a really strong safety next track record, but also a technology that's readily manufacturable and distributable. And as Hari described earlier, a lot of the technologies that have come along previously in the genetic medicine space, especially focused on DNA, have been based on viral vectors. And that's actually quite limiting for what can be done with these as a medicine in a couple of ways. One is that these viral vectors are immunogenic. So patients, people who are injected with them develop immune responses. This limits them to single administration. And so when we actually treat patients with this in a clinical trial, clinicians will take their best guess at what the dose is for a patient. But if the dose is is too low or too high, there's unfortunately not the opportunity to treat these patients again with today's technology because of the immune response against the viral vector. With an RNA-based medicine, that's not necessarily the case. Because they are not inherently immunogenic, they can be dosed to effect. So a clinician could start at a low dose and increase the dose of the therapy until the desired level of genome engineering is achieved. So we think that can make the clinical trials that TESSER does, and in general, gene-writing clinical trials, safer and, and more efficacious than other genetic medicines. The other reason that the RNA-based technologies can really change how we practice medicine today is that we can make these treatments more accessible. So because it's so challenging to manufacture a viral vector, actually, there's not that many people who have been treated with them. So RNA medicines have now been scaled to hundreds of millions, soon billions of doses. And there's no reason that that same scaling principles can be applied to or won't be applied to Tessera's technology for gene writing. Ultimately, we think that it might be possible to take some of the medicines that are currently being administered to patients outside of the body, like CAR T therapies, for example, and administer them to patients inside of the body. Using RNA will actually help us to realize the true potential of being able to bring these treatments from being ex vivo to in vivo therapies because we can theoretically scale to doses and administer to patients wherever they are in the world instead of requiring them to come to a, a kind of first rate medical center. Take a long period of time off work, have an intense pre treatment in order to prepare them to receive treatment before returning back to their lives. So, collectively, we believe that these RNA based approaches can really change the game for genetic medicine.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I think there's certainly a big cost challenge, right, when you think about cell therapies, especially. So, quite promising that you have an uh, opportunity to help disrupt that. You know, that said, As you guys sort of uh, articulate some of the opportunities and advantages that gene writing poses, we'd love to just sort of hear how you think about healthcare more broadly, especially since we in the biotech and pharma industry sort of tend to think about it from a medicine perspective, but I think there really is a broader sort of health and population health sort of set of implications uh, if your vision comes to light. would love to just sort of hear some thoughts on that.
1: I think, you know, the current... Paradigm of genetic medicines is putting a ton of pressure on the system, particularly from a payer perspective, where the cost of treatments are quite significant. And I think the Tesla technology, as Jake mentioned, which relies on what now can be considered simpler technologies, uh, such as RNA, has the potential to really bring about a revolution in terms of the cost of these kinds of treatments. More broadly, in terms of population health, uh, I think that's a harder question to answer, but I think this essentially expands the tools at our disposal to positively affect population health. The development of RNA medicines had a very clear impact on population health over the last year and a half, and this wasn't envisioned even about 10 years ago that this could be possible. And so with the development of the technology that we're developing a tesra you might have uh, outcomes that we haven't even thought of today uh, at the population level one thing is for sure the cycle times for new technology realization continue to shorten over time and so while we've had to wait for you know two or three decades in prior times For new technology to get realized, I think those cycle times are much less. And so we could actually have a population health impact by these technologies sooner than we think.
2: Yeah. Just to echo what Hari said, you know, if we're successful at Tesla, and if our field of genetic medicine more broadly successful, we're going to change the paradigm by which healthcare exists from what our chairman, Nibar Finn has said from what is today sick care to truly being healthcare. You know The paradigm today is someone is diagnosed with a disease, and unfortunately, that starts a lifetime for many of these chronic diseases of treatment, regression, treatment, regression. And really what we're trying to do is control the sickness and channel it as best we can towards health. But unfortunately, most of the drugs that we use today are not powerful enough to truly restore patients from that sickness back to health. But genetic medicine is so powerful that it offers the opportunity to not only truly correct disease but also the cure disease in the true sense of the word, where a patient can have a procedure done and they can go from being sick to being healthy for the rest of their lives. The closest paradigm for this that I know of is the way that we fix broken bones. Patient goes into the hospital with an issue, they go under surgery and they leave the hospital with a small recovery time and the surgery is done well. That sickness or that malady left behind and that can fundamentally change the way that we think about healthcare, the way we pay for healthcare, and of course, the way that we administer healthcare. Neither Hari nor I are policy wonks, so hard to actually prognosticate what that will mean for the future. But from a technology perspective, it's really exciting to think that we could help to contribute to a transformation of our industry from one where patients are just taken care of when they're sick to actually patients are treated and cured to become healthy. Wonderful.
0: Certainly sounds like an ambitious goal and obviously uh, one that, if it comes to light, I
2: think could be quite
0: positive um, globally. I'm kind of curious when it comes to delivery specifically for a measurable number of diseases, whether it be CNS to cystic fibrosis, right, where there are genetic origin, delivery ends up becoming an important challenge. You know, Jake, I think you mentioned lipid nanoparticles earlier, right, in the context of RNA. I know there's been several decades worth of investment in that broader space. We'd love to just maybe hear how you guys are seeing innovation in drug delivery impact what you're doing from a gene writing perspective.
1: Yeah, very important topic. In fact, Jennifer Doudna, I believe, was the one who stated it's all about delivery, delivery, delivery when somebody asked her what's the remaining challenge in genetic medicine. And that is absolutely true. But in fact, we are actually seeing a high level of interest in the development of new delivery vehicles we've obviously now delivered rna successfully to the muscles of billions of people we have had positive proof of concept of delivery to the liver most recently by intelia but uh, you mentioned a couple of tissues that are still work in progress but i think there is a huge upsurge in the amount of delivery r d that's happening as evidenced most recently by the acquisition of Guide Therapeutics by Beam, Tidal Therapeutics by Sanofi, and we keep hearing about new deals happening almost on a monthly basis these days. So there's a a great upsurge in the amount of delivery R&D that's happening. So it makes us quite optimistic about the availability of delivery solutions for tissues beyond the ones I described. I think it's a matter of attention and resources that will lead to new delivery vehicles. We at Tesra are obviously laser focused on this and have put in quite a bit of effort internally and externally to further the reach of our delivery.
0: Cool. Well, I wanted to just maybe close out here by thanking you both for joining us on the podcast today certainly sounds like you're working on a very interesting and novel approach to a critical set of problems and truly building a platform, right? In the truest sense of the word, in terms of the capabilities. So I think uh, we're all very eager to see uh, what transpires and what you start to discuss as time goes on. And would love to have you both back on the podcast to talk through those uh, innovations. So I'd love to thank you all so much and I look forward to the next conversation.
1: Thank you very much, Alok. It was a pleasure to talk to you.
2: Thanks, Alok. Really appreciate you taking the time.
0: Thank you for listening to this episode of Biotech 2050. This episode is hosted by me, Alok Tai. It's edited and mixed by Megan Lovering. If you enjoyed this episode of Biotech 2050, please subscribe to our podcast and leave us a review. Also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at biotech2050pod. Again, that's biotech2050pod. Until next time.